safe. So I really appreciate your generosity. And I really would appreciate more your generosity over there because I can bless people. I can bless, I can bless mentally handicapped children in China, things like this. Um, I, since the last time I was here, I think we figured out last night there was five brand new ones. So please come avail yourself of those things. Uh, I know that it'll help your life. Let me tell you the format for tonight because I know if you're anything like me, you like to know what's going to happen, right? Because if you, if you don't know what's going to happen, it causes anxiety. So if I tell you exactly what's going to happen, then it relieves the anxiety. So, um, so tonight I'm going to teach for about half as long as I did last night. So this teaching should go to right about five till eight or so. And then we're going to spend the rest of the night um, in, in some Q&A discussing so, some of these things. And um, I'm going to tell you that Phil Adlam has dibs on the first question, and, and I can tell you it's a good one because he, he told me what it was going to be, and it's just a real doozy, and I can't, it's, it's just really good. So, and, and so, you, so, so if, you've been, if you've been writing down your questions from last night and tonight, and remember the rules, the rules are it has to be a question, all right? In other words, if it doesn't end with a question mark, it's a theological statement, we don't care. That's one. Two, it has to be mutually edifying, right? So, uh, so it needs to, you need to think, well, this, this might be something that could benefit the whole room, and it needs to be non-antagonistic. That's the rules for Q&A, all right? So we're going to talk about that in a second. Let, let me uh, show you. This is, uh, this is Ruth chapter 1, um, and so I want to read this, and, and I want to, there's a lot of life lessons in this, but there's also some great Bible study lessons in this. So, so for your own Bible study, um, if you employ some of these tools, it, it can really help you. Um, this is what it says. In, in the days when the judges ruled, uh, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mayon and Kilion. So get, get the story straight. One family living in a famine. Evidently, they're taking refuge in another region called Moab. So these are Jews from Bethlehem in Judah, and they're taking refuge in Moab, which is obviously a foreign uh, country. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab, to, and, they, and they lived there. Uh, now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons, and they married Moabite women. Now, this is a real no-no. I mean, for, for the writer to point out that these were Moabite women, this was a real no-no. We're going to talk about this in a second. This is actually, this is the no-no in that day. I'll tell, I'll, we'll explain that in a second. They married Moabite women, um, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, uh, obviously the Bible skips a lot of details at times, okay? So it just, honestly, in one sentence, it just skipped 10 years of detail. After they have lived about 10 years, uh, both Mayan and Kilion died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is a story where literally, when you read it, it doesn't take long to figure out, literally nothing's going right. Like, nothing is going right. Here's just a few things going wrong. Next, next slide. A, a couple of things. Uh, one, it's the wrong time period. So this was during the time that the judges ruled the earth and there was a famine. Well, what that means is, is, is if there's a famine during the time of the judges, there was no king to go ask for help. There was no government infrastructure to store up extra to help people who were poor. This was the time of the judges. And in the time of the judges, it just says that in the time of the judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Well, that's a real problem because most people are selfish. And so a lot of times when you read the book of Judges, this is just basic hermeneutics. Sometimes the Bible is telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible's telling you what God approves of. Sometimes the Bible's telling you just what happened. It doesn't, it doesn't mean God approved of it or disapproved of it. It's just saying this is what happened. Sometimes the Bible is telling you somebody's opinion. A great example of that is marriage. Like, if I was to say to you, is the Bible for or against marriage? Well, the answer is 
It depends. Solomon says, if you find a wife, you find a good thing. Paul says, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain, right? Now, those, those are two very different opinions on marriage. One guy is obviously very pro-marriage. He's got a thousand women. It's, it's fine. Another guy is, is convinced, why would you bother signing up for such a life of heartache? He's convinced of that. And then, of course, then of course Jesus, um, Jesus says nothing about marriage. Um, the only thing Jesus ever says about marriage is, if you're married, unless there's unrepentant marital unfaithfulness, stay together, right? Uh, the only other thing that I know of that Jesus said about marriage was, was don't worry about marriage, it's not in heaven anyway, right? Now, if you, if you hear that and, and, and inside your heart you go, oh, no, oh, please, Shane, do some sort of history thing that we're missing something there. Please, I, I want to know that I'm going to see my schnookums in heaven. If, 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 that's, if that's your heart, you probably have a pretty good marriage. But if I just quoted Jesus there and underneath the seat, you just went, yes. Then you probably, you, you, you might want to work on, work on some things. I live, I, I live with you for 58 years. Last thing I want to do is get to heaven and find you there. That'd be awful, That'd be, right? right? <clears throat> so once again, once again, sometimes the Bible, there's at least 14 different things that the Bible uh, does. And, and I don't, I don't want to get into that right now, but just to say that in the time, the, the stuff you read in the book of Judges was not stuff God approves of. It actually bails us out. It says, it says, this is what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes. Sometimes the Bible is just telling you what happened. And so for Ruth and these people, uh, Elimelech and Naomi, to be living in the time of the Judges, that meant there was no government infrastructure to go to. She's living in the wrong time period. She's living in the wrong country. This is, this is most Moab, uh, the most hated people in Jewish history at this point. I'm going to talk to you about why for a second. She's the wrong gender. Um, she's a female. Um, in that day, um, to be a female not attached to a man, uh, social historians call this liminal, uh, literally no rights. Uh, the ancient world did not know, know what to do with women not attached to men. Um, uh, you, you had no choice with who you married, by the way. You, um, uh, when, when you had your first period, uh, by, by the time you had your first period, they had already chosen your husband, and it had nothing to do with love. It had everything to do with protecting the family land rights. That, it, that, it, that was predominantly what it was. She's the wrong race. She's a Moabite, and she's the wrong husband. Uh, she married an Israelite, which was an incredible no-no, and we're going to talk about that in a second. It would have been, it, but it would not have been her choice. She would have been 13 or 14 years old. It, it wouldn't have been her choice. Remember, they had to marry young back then because they died young. Average age back then was 30 years old or so. I mean, honestly, it's just, marriage was a totally different thing. It had nothing to do with love. It had everything to do with protecting land rights, and it had to do with procreating in such a time before you died. This was sort of the basic way things uh, went. And, and there's a real problem with this passage. This passage is actually, it's actually worse than it appears. Um, and the reason for that is, is the Jews hated the Moabites. And the reason they hated the Moabites is, is it's in some history books as well, but it actually, this is just basic Bible study. If you just go to blueletterbible.org or, or some sort of computerized Bible study and you do a word study on Moabites, you will find several not nice stories early in the, early in the story that, that sort of define the relationship between Israel and Moab. The main one comes in four chapters in the book of Numbers. It's a four-chapter-long story in the book of Numbers. Now, because it's four chapters long, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to read snippets of it, but I'm going to set it up in its holistic look, and then I'll look at snippets of it. Essentially, it's this. There was a king of Moab named Balak, 
And Balak was one of the first people to notice this large group of people coming out of Egypt, right? Because it's hard not to notice several million people walking from one place in the earth to another. And if you're the king of Moab and these people outnumber you, that is quite threatening. And so Balak panics. And Balak realizes, I'm not going to be able to defeat these people with weapons. They outnumber us so much. So here was Balak's idea. Balak hired an Aramite witch doctor named Balaam, a guy who takes money to put curses on people. He says, he says here's my only hope. Here's what i got to do. I've got to hire this Aramite witch doctor. Now, the people of Aram worshipped a guy named Ramon. Ramon was the god of Aram. We know that from the book of Kings because a guy named Naaman, a general from Aram, was a worshipper of Ramon. And when he got leprosy, he tried to get Ramon to heal his leprosy, but he couldn't. But his Israelite slave girl, which where did he get an Israelite slave girl from? from attacking Israel. She told him that the Israelite God heals leprosy. He went and checked it out, ends up getting healed of leprosy. There's all kinds of things that go on around Aram and Ramon. So what happens in this story is Balak hires an Aramite worshiper of Ramon, a witch doctor, and he pays him a fee for divination in order to put a curse on Israel because he thought that was his only hope. Balaam shows up to curse Israel, and as he tries to curse them, nothing comes out of his mouth other than blessings. It's a weird sort of story that after three times, Balak goes, wait a minute, I paid you to curse them, and you just blessed them. Maybe it's your vantage point, and he takes him to another vantage point and says, go again, and he blesses them again, and he blesses them again, and no matter how much more money Balak offers Balaam, he ends up blessing Israel, and this ends up as a disaster. That is the overall story. Let me give you the snippets from the Bible. Now, this is um, from Numbers. It says, Balak said, a people have come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now, come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. By the way, he's talking to Balaam, not to God, right? He says, so the elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. So they're going to pay him to put a curse on Israel. That's what he does. Now, this is a few verses later. Next slide. So, so Balaam, Balaam is the witch doctor. Balaam said to God, now, now I want you to keep in mind, when it says Balaam said to God, who did Balaam think God was? Ramon. Balaam's never heard of Jehovah. He doesn't even know what these people are called. He calls them a people coming out of Egypt. It's not like he had been introduced to the God of the Israelites. When it says Balaam said to God, he's praying to the God he worships, which we know from the Bible that the God of Aram was Ramon. So watch, he says, so Balaam says to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that have come out of Egypt cover the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them. Perhaps I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they're blessed. Interesting, isn't it, that God loves his people enough to step over any kind of cultural barriers. This guy thinks he's talking to Ramon, and Jehovah's answering him back on behalf of his people. There's, God just does what he wants to do, right? God just does whatever it is he wants to do. Now, now watch this. this. This is the next picture show. So Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? Now, here's what's happened. Balaam has showed up to curse the people, and then when he opens his mouth, a huge chapter-long blessing comes out of his mouth. 
And Balak's ticked because you can understand Balak's point of view. Balak's ticked because Balak's like, I paid you the fee for divination and you've come here and blessed these people. What's wrong with you? Here's what he says. What, what have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Now, once again, he still thinks he's talking about Ramon. His God is named Ramon, but evidently he keeps blessing these people. That's a chapter later. This happens three different times. Three different episodes where Balak goes, come here, I'm going to pay you more money, now do it again, and then a blessing comes out. And then he does it again, pays him more money, a blessing comes out. Then watch what happens, next one. Now when Balaam, this is a great, this, now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as he had at other times. In other words, he's getting a revelation. Wait a minute. The God I serve is always for cursing people, but this God must be different because he's evidently for blessing people. And if this God's for blessing people, I probably shouldn't curse people. I'm not going to resort to divination as I have in every other moment of my life because it makes me money. If he says to bless, I'm going to bless these people. And, and, and he turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel camp tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke this message. Which leads to all kinds of questions, like, is God allowed to do that? Is God allowed to use a foreign Aramite worshiper of Ramon witch doctor who just took a fee for divination to actually prophesy an actual blessing over his people? <laughs> this is God early on stepping out of all kinds of boxes that we have made. Does God use an atheist who's making fun of him by praying for another atheist to heal the atheist? Like, it's that kind of stuff. And, and then if you keep reading in, in Numbers 24, it's a chapter long, another chapter long blessing toward the Israelites out of the mouth of a foreign Aramite worshiper of Ramon who just taken a fee for divination to curse the people. It's a weird story. And, and there's all kinds of weird things in the story. There's talking donkeys. There, I mean, there's, I mean, honestly, it's just a weird story. This doesn't go well. Balak's really ticked. Watch what happens. This is Numbers 24 verse 10. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave and go at once at home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. In other words, I paid you to curse these people. You've done nothing but bless them. I want my money back, and I hope you enjoy your relationship with whoever your God is because he just kept you from getting paid, bro. But this doesn't solve the problem for Balak. Balak needs these people to go away. And the cursing wasn't coming. So Balak is very clever. Here's what he does. He puts on an ancient pagan festival um, to fertility to the Baal of Peor with this huge open-aired activities around sexuality, right? So what he does is he uses Moabite women to seduce Israelite men to come participate in this gigantic outdoor orgy um, in honor to the Baal of Peor. It was a gigantic outdoor, I don't know how to say it, sex party. It, it, was, it was just this huge pagan festival, which wasn't uncommon in those days. It was a pagan festival celebrating fertility, and he used the Moabite women's sexuality to seduce the Israelite men to come participate in this thing. Now, watch, watch how this goes. Watch this. This is Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim. Now, come on, that's funny right there. That's pretty funny right there. That's, that, that is classic, right? Because when you give in to Moabite women's sexuality, it can leave you in a land of... Right? It's, it's, it's in the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. 
While Israel was staying in Shittim, the, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women uh, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Beor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. In other words, God stepped in, got a witch doctor from Aram to speak a blessing over them, and they still weren't moved by that. They still engaged in sexual immorality in this pagan festival to fertility, um, and it just, it, 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 the whole thing ends in a disaster. God's ticked, Moses is ticked, Balak's ticked, Balaam's ticked, he didn't get paid. The whole thing is just a disaster. So later, when Moses is writing national law, Here's what he writes. This is in Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. You are, you are catching the metaphor there. It doesn't say after 10 generations, it'll be okay. It says, no, God will never, ever, ever accept a Moabite. I don't care if it's 10 generations from now. God will never, ever, ever accept a Moabite person. Now, is that true? No, that's not true. Is Ruth not a Moabite? Yes. Was she accepted by God? Yes. Is Jesus 1 16th Moabite? Yes. Is he not accepted by God? <laughs> yes. Sometimes the Bible's not telling you what God's saying. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. This is one of those great examples of the Bible is not a static record of what God is. Sometimes the Bible's showing you what was true here only to understand something better here. This is one of those great examples of that. No Moabite will ever be accepted by God. I don't care if it's 10 generations out. Now, did Moses have a reason to write that? Yes, he did, given what had just happened. For they did not, and he even, he even recants the story to them. He, he recounts it to them. Watch, watch what he says. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, the son of Beor and Pithor from Aram, to pronounce a curse on you. Remember? They paid the guy to curse you. Now, watch, watch, next one. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. In other words, Moses says, here's the deal. If you go back and look at the story, God overstepped the boundaries of Scripture, and he used a foreign witch doctor to bless you because he loves you more than he does the rules. I love that. I love that. Do not seek a treaty of friendship. Now, I want you to notice this last line. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So the scriptures said that when, if they're a Moabite, don't even be a friend with them, much less marry them. Now, that is the historical background of the book of Ruth. You want to talk about wrong place, wrong time, wrong gender, wrong race, wrong culture, wrong group of people, wrong husband. Everything's wrong. This is the definition of what it means to be stuck. Let, let's say it this way. Next one. Wrong social status. She was liminal, a widow, no rights. They didn't know what to do with these people. These, the, Ruth and Orpah in this situation are stuck with no obvious solution for any way forward. Now, with that as the historical backdrop, let's see if that sheds light on how the story ends. Watch what happens. Next one. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to Judah. Where's Judah? Judah's in Israel. What's the law of Israel? The Torah, Deuteronomy. Who's not welcome there? Moabites, ever. I don't care if it's 10 generations out. God is not gonna get over this, right? Watch this. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you would find rest in the home of another husband. Remember, in those days, do you see the priority on getting these people married? Like, in those days, women without husbands had no right. No, Naomi's like, wait a minute, you can't go back with me to Israel. And here's the thing, I know you don't understand the whole story, but here's the thing, Moabite women are really seen as dogs in, in Israel. And the reason is, is that there's this story from our history books where Moabite women seduced Israelite men with their sexuality and it worked. And it's just a stigma that you'll never get over. Even the Bible says we must hate you, okay? This is how bad it's gonna be for you in Israel, right? The Bible tells us to hate you. Now that's a pretty bad place to be when the Bible says to hate them, right? The Bible tells us to hate you. So we're going to have to hate you. And here's what you understand. I love you. But if you come back with me to Israel, all the rules change. And the rules change because of the story that you had nothing to do with. I know you had nothing to do with Balak or Balaam or the sexual orgies or any of that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. It's still a part of our thing. It got written down in something called scripture. And because it's in scripture, we can't change it. And so when you get to Israel, people are going to hate you. This is not good. Here's the thing. You got to go back because there's literally zero chance of you finding a husband in Israel. We're not even allowed to be friends with you, much less marry you. This is not going to be good. You need to go back. And maybe the Lord will show you kindness by letting some cousin or something pick you up as his fifth wife. That's your best option here. This is, this is stuck. Watch, watch this, next one. It keeps going. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You go back with her. I would say Naomi's a terrible evangelist, but nonetheless, she's very, very, very adept at culture. She's like, you don't understand, Ruth. You're a Moabite. My people aren't over the whole Balaam, Balak, talking donkey thing. Listen, it's not good. You can't come back. I know you don't understand, but scriptures tell us not to like you. This is how cut and dry it is. The Bible says don't like these people. You're not going to be liked, which leads me to this. I'll get there in a second. This is what happens. But Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. This is a woman that doesn't understand. The Bible says you're not allowed to be that God's person. You can't, my God's not interested in being your God. The Bible says so. You don't understand, Ruth. But Ruth has a revelation of the love of God that Naomi didn't have, and that is this. Naomi, if your God is half as kind as you have been to me, I know that your God is going to accept me. I don't care what the rules say. I think your God loves people more than rules. I think that's going to be the case. And whether you get that or not, I'm going to choose to trust the faithfulness of what I've seen in your life more than I trust any rule. We have got, I am going to cling to you because I trust the love of your God more than you do. 
Which leads me to this observation. As leaders in the church in Gladstone, I think there's a room there. Uh, as leaders in the church in Gladstone, I think oftentimes we ask the wrong question. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's not a bad question. It's just the wrong question. And that wrong question is this. What does the Bible say? So when faced with a certain situation, our first question normally is, what's the Bible say about this? It's not a bad question. It's just the wrong question. I think the better question would be, how would I want to be treated if I was in that exact situation? Jesus said, the fulfillment of all scriptures is doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want to honor the scriptures and if you want to fulfill the scriptures, which we do, the best thing to ask is not what do the scriptures say. The best thing to ask is, is how would I want to be treated if I was in that exact same situation? Because in doing that, we fulfill the scriptures. In this story, if they go word for word with what the scriptures say, they're going to kick Ruth out of Israel and thereby ruining any chance for Jesus to come to the earth. What happens in this story is doing unto others as you would have them do unto you actually becomes the fulfillment of scripture. And if you read to the end, Ruth becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. What if we started asking the better question? When Naomi, when Naomi realized that Ruth wasn't going anywhere, she quit compelling her. Now, a couple of observations. I thank you. That's okay. Go, go back. Go, yeah, here we go. A couple of observations about what this means for us. One, one question the book of Ruth addresses is, is am I stuck with my lot in life or can I be empowered by a better choice? Am I stuck in my situation? You know what I've heard? I've heard rumors. And I don't know if rumors are true. Rumors are what they are. Rumors are rumors. But I've heard, I've heard that the mining industry is suffering right now. And because the mining industry is suffering, uh, cities like uh, Mackay, Emerald, uh, Claremont, uh, Morambah, Blackwater, uh, all places I've been in the last week, um, uh, uh, Gladstone, that, that some of that has, it has incredible economic impact and, 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 and people, uh, people can leave town. I've heard that. And so so one, of the, one of the things we might get into is, is, oh, I'm stuck in the wrong place at the wrong time, at the wrong economy, with the wrong group of people. And so we could start feeling stuck. But one of the questions the book of Ruth addresses is, is, are we actually stuck in bad situations or can we be empowered by seeing things a little bit differently? Can we be empowered by making a better choice? I would say to you, I don't know any of your stories but I would wager a bet that none of us, no matter how bad our circumstance is, is as stuck as Ruth was. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong gender, wrong social status. Heck, the Bible says don't like her. That's stuck. That's every excuse in the world to give up on life. Ruth had every excuse at her disposal not to move forward and to give up on life. Which leads me to this question. What's your excuse been? Why haven't you said yes to the infinite possibilities that God has for your life? For what reason? For what excuse? Let, let, let's say it this way. Next one. Um, at the end of the story, God uses Ruth as a part of a lineage that brings salvation to the whole world. If Ruth doesn't take that one next step to Bethlehem with no guarantee, there was no guarantee of how they would treat her. 
Actually, if there was any guarantee, it would be that she would not be liked. That was a problem. The Bible said don't like her. She took one next step to Bethlehem with no guarantees of what, the ne- of what step five was. She just took a move. Here's my point. You never, ever know where taking the one next step changes everything for everyone because it didn't just change her life. It changed the destiny of the whole world because through her obedience came eventually Messiah. You never know. You say, Shane, but I don't know where that road leads. That's okay. Take the one next step. What's it going to Okay, you got two choices. You can remain stuck or you could take one next step to Bethlehem with no guarantees, which, which leads me to this observation. Next slide. What's your excuse? Is it heritage, DNA, background? Shane, you don't know where I come from. My family, they're sort of like rednecks, man. You don't, you don't understand. You don't understand, man. I came from here. And place of birth, skill level. I mean, if you have a skill level deficit, this is Australia. Go get the skills. You can go to school anywhere here. Personality, I love that. It's just not my personality. You know, you know we, you know, that's just how I am. You realize we never use that excuse if it's a good thing? I'm just funny. That's just how I am. I'm just generous. It's just how I am. No, it's always something, it's always something distasteful. I'm a jerk. That's just how I am. Take me or leave me. Of course, most people will leave you. I don't have the money. I have this diagnosis. You know, the doctor tells me I'm depressed, so I have to act depressed because they told me I'm depressed. I have to act depressed. That's what I have to do, right? It's my excuse, my anxiety, believing the wrong story, too many obstacles. The price is too high. Oh, oh, give it a go to start a church at Gladstone. Man, do you know how many people might come against me with this? You know what? You know, there's a big price of that. You know what I got to give up to do that? Hey, hey, be, hey, hey, take on the youth ministry at Port City Church. Help with that thing because the next generation's coming and we need to mold the values. Oh, oh, but man, you know, there's a price to that. I'm going to have to give up my Friday nights and there's always Friday night rugby league on, you know, and there's no such thing as a DVR, right? Like we, we do these things. People won't approve. If I make that move, people won't approve. And I think we all at times have that disease of people pleasing. And, and, and Jesus had a lot to say about organizing our life around the approval of men instead of the approval of God. He actually used the word hell. And when talking about it, he says, if you live like that, you'll, you'll find yourself in danger in your life of hell. Because there's nothing, nothing spells hell like living for everybody else. Um, ne- next one. So how about some sticky things? These are things that stick us. Um, one, Excuses. Shane, I live in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm the wrong gender. I'm the wrong intelligence. I have the wrong background. I have the wrong DNA. I have the wrong skill set. I have the wrong diagnosis. I've, there's too much price to pay. We have, we have no, limitless excuses as to why we don't say yes to the infinite possibilities God has for our life. And just take the next one step. Just the next one step can change everything. Second sticky thing is living with other people's expectations in mind. Making your decisions based on what other people want you to do. I love this. This is a quote from a Catholic uh, theologian named Thomas Merton. Here's what he says. How can you ever expect to arrive at your destination if you're on the road to another man's city? (laughs) In other words, if all you consider is, will they like me? Will they approve? Will they like me? Will they approve? What you will find is you'll be discontented with life because wherever you find yourself, you'll be on the road to another man's city. Um, Next one, 
uh, believing the wrong story. Believing, believing that it, it, it see, and, and in this story, it gets really convicting because if Ruth chose to believe the scriptures, she should have stayed in Moab. But she chose to believe something better than the scriptures, which was the heart of God, the compassion and the spirit of what eventually would be the risen Christ. She knew that this God was nicer than Moses' rules. That makes her revolutionary. (laughs) Four, unforgiveness and bitterness. Unforgiveness and bitterness. She had every reason to be bitter with her situation in life. I lost my family, I lost my husband, I'm liminal, I have no rights. What's wrong with this world? I'm in the wrong place, I'm a Moabite, they hate me. Their Bible says to hate me. She had every reason to be bitter at the Israelites, but she didn't. She chose to trust the compassion of the Israelite God. Um, So where does that leave us? A couple of questions for tonight. Of the sticky things, which is your biggest hurdle? Are you an excuse? It's not my place to tell you, it's my place to ask. Are you an excuse maker? What stopped you from taking the next one step to Bethlehem? What stopped you? What, what are you doing? Well, Shane, there's no guarantees. Well, there aren't any guarantees. Guarantees are deception. They're an illusion. You can't, you, sometimes you just have to take the next one step. Are you an excuse maker? Two, what is your one next step toward Bethlehem? Thank you. What is the one next step toward Bethlehem for you? You know what it might be? You feel stuck. You just lost your job. What am I going to do? And you know there's this little poke. There's this little poke. Start your own business. Start your own business. Start your own business. And you know what your next step would be? Go see a lawyer about what it means to file papers to start the business. He might look at you and go, don't do it. That's okay. You took one next step and started eliminating things. Maybe, maybe your next step is relational. Send her a text. What's the worst that could happen? No reply. I mean, the worst that could happen would be some obscene giffy back at you, but, but then at least you know where you stand. Maybe, maybe your next move is approaching that boss about that idea and you're scared of being rejected, but it might be the very idea that turns the entire business around. You might get promoted two or three times because of this. It might be the next one step. Maybe your next one step is calling your pastor and saying, how can I help? I'm sure you need some children's volunteers. I have a blue card. I got one. Hey, I'm a talented drummer. I could do this. Hey, 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 I'm pretty good with technical stuff. If you'll train me, I can do this. I'm willing to help. Maybe the next, you're only stuck if you don't take the next one step. And everybody can take the next one step. Let's say it this way. Are you willing to take the step without a guaranteed for for where it might lead? What, what, What I'm so moved by and inspired by with Ruth is there's no way for me to explain it if you don't understand the history, just how stuck she was. There is no more stuck than... I'm a Moabite, and scriptures tell me that God will never accept me. Uh, I'm a single Moabite woman in the ancient world with a God that says he'll never accept me. She realized that wasn't God. That was Moses. 
Moses was still ticked about that whole Baal of Peor pagan thing. <laughs> he was still stuck in the land of Shittim, you know. He, he's, just, he's just out there. She realized that God's compassion, the spirit of the law, was a whole lot better thing to embrace than the letter of it. And she took her one next step. Now, here's what I hope that did for you. I hope that challenged you to take your one next step. From a practical point of view, I want you to take your one next step. I want you to call your pastor. I want you to say, how can I help? What can I do? And from a practical point of view, I want to do that. But for you Bible nerds in Bible nerddom, I, I, want, I wanted to power you with some tools on how do you see this stuff. All you got to do is, go, is take a Bible study uh, software and type in Moabites and start reading the stories. And you start finding, wait a minute, that's why they were hated. That's why. That, there's always a story behind the story that makes that story make more sense. And it's easier to find today than ever. I can't imagine how these guys wrote concordances with no computer. Those guys were the geniuses. Like, I think if I, if I without a computer, I, I would just be a, I'd be a bricklayer or something. I could not, there's, there's no way that I'd be disciplined enough to, 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 to go look it all up by hand. Today's much easier. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that, I hope you were, but more than enjoy it, I hope you were inspired by it. I hope you're empowered by it, and I hope that you leave here tonight taking your one next step. Now, as promised last night, we're going to do a bit of a Q&A, because this, this is my last night here for another year, so may as well uh, utilize it. And we're going to do some Q&A till about 8.20 or so, and, um, and, then, and then we'll go home and watch NCIS or whatever you do. That's, 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 that's what we'll do. But Phil Adlam gets the first question because his question is flipping brilliant. So because this is very well attended tonight, I'm going to hand him a mic. Um, that way everybody can hear it. Shane, uh, Paul and James, why is their view on the scriptures that we read so different from each other? How good of a question is that? Because there's no way that you can read Paul and then read James and think, they agree with one another. Zero. Like, Paul goes so far to say, um, you are completely justified by faith, absent of works. And he, in Galatians, he says it this way, you're completely justified by faith in Christ. But actually, in the Greek language, makes it even softer than that. In the original language, it says, you're complete, in English, they translate it, you're completely justified by faith in Christ. In Greek, it says, you're completely justified by the faithfulness of Christ, which is even an entirely different thing. With James, is very clear on faith without works is dead. There obviously is some, um, some conflict. Now, to understand this, we have to understand one history story and one Bible story, okay? The history story, um, you have to understand that in a in a 120-year period of time, there was uh, 24 different messiahs, okay? So there was 24 different people claiming to be anointed of God to free the Jews from Roman oppression. To them, Messiah did not mean, I get to go to heaven because of what he's doing. Messiah was a new king to establish the line of David again against this horrible, oppressive Roman Empire. And there's tons and tons of history books that will tell you all of their stories. Simon Ben-Guara was one. There was a, there was a Messiah named Menahem. There was a, there was a Messiah named, um, uh, oh man, 
uh, I can't remember that other guy's name. There, anyway, there's 24. Uh, Simon Ben-Guara is absolutely right. Menahem is absolutely right. Menahem was the Messiah that the Roman Empire cornered in Masada, and then they just took four months starving him out, and then they ended up having to all commit suicide. Um, uh, there was, uh, there was um, Simon Ben-Guara. There, there was one Messiah, and to this day, they don't know who this was. And back then, he was, um, he was causing the Roman Empire lots of custard. And he, he was 20 years after Jesus, and he was, just called, he was just called the Egyptian. He just called himself the Egyptian. And what the Egyptian did, he worked out that every Messiah that ever took on Rome, you know, hey, I'm a Messiah, I'm a new king, come get us because God is for us. It ended up not going very well for them. They, they ended up getting slaughtered, 100% of them. So what the, what the Egyptian did was he hired 4,000 Sikari. Sikari were uh, throat cutters, they were assassins. 4,000 assassins, and they blended in during the day, so they were woodworkers and, and sheep herders or whatever. They just blended in in society during the day, but at night... They came out dressed in all black, and they would assassinate high-ranking Roman officials, high-ranking temple officials. They would just cut their throat, leave them in the ground, and then they'd put their little Zorro, you know, uh, um, the Egyptian. They had a little insignia taking credit for it. And there was no such thing as CSI Jerusalem. There was no DNA testing. It's like, hmm, I have a hunch. No, what, you just found the body, right? And so, and so this Egyptian was taking out high-ranking government officials um, and he wasn't an Egyptian, he was a Jew, but he just called himself the Egyptian. He was taking out high-ranking government officials um, and high-ranking temple officials um, with 4,000 secret assassins known as the Sycorai. That's one part of the story. Second part of the story is, you have to know this, James and Paul hated one another, okay? They couldn't stand one another. If you, um, if you read some of, the, some of the writings of James in particular that did not make it into the Bible, which is a lot of them, um, James calls Paul an apostate heretic who claimed to see our, G our Lord but never did. Now, um, now, put yourself in James's shoes. James is trying to run the church of Jesus Christ where? In Jerusalem. He's trying to run it there. This guy that was known for killing them, suddenly claims to have an experience that no one else saw. And in that experience, he claims that Jesus made him an apostle like the rest of them, even though Jesus, Paul never walked with Jesus. And then in that, he's empowered by Jesus to bring the church, the, the church of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles with a message like, don't worry about Moses at all. He's irrelevant. Well, to the church in Jerusalem... That is damaging to the cause of Christ. You can't, you can't run the church of Jerusalem and tell them the Torah is irrelevant. That is counterproductive. But to be fair to Paul, nor can you start a church in Corinth and tell every 30-year-old man in Corinth they got to be circumcised or they can't join. That is anti-church growth. You can't do that either, right? So Paul is trying to do his thing amongst the Gentiles, and he's just telling them, don't worry about all this Torah stuff. Don't worry about all that. It's all irrelevant. Don't worry about that. Just let's go with faith in Jesus. That's what we need to do. James is like, no, no, you can't do that. I'm trying to run a church where this stuff matters. You can't do that stuff, Paul. You just can't do that. And so they were fighting. Now, with that as the backdrop, I don't know how easy it is for you to put Acts 21. Um, I don't know how easy it is for you to put Acts 21 up on that screen. With that. If it's hard, don't worry about it because everybody um, should have a Bible or some way to read the Bible, right? So if you turn to Acts 21...
Acts 21, verse 17. If you have something other than the King James Version, that'd be awesome. If you don't, don't worry. Everybody get to Acts 21, verse 17, right? I gave her no warning. It's not, I mean, seriously, don't worry about it. I should have given her warning because I knew what Phil's question was. I was so excited about it. Um, if, you, if, if you have a, a certain type of Bible, it probably has a headline, Paul visits James, okay? What has happened is, is James has asked for Paul to come to Jerusalem to give an account for his preaching. And here's how it goes. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So Paul is now in front of, let's just put it this way, James and the board of directors, okay? Um, After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are amongst the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. In other words, they said, listen, we celebrate people following Jesus. What we question is your method. We've heard that you tell people everywhere, don't worry about Moses. Don't worry about our laws. Don't worry about our customs. Don't worry about circumcision. We've heard that you've done this. This is not a good thing. Now, if you keep reading, what you'll find is that, is that James tells Paul, he says, by the way, when you were on your way here, we sent a delegation behind you to your churches to let them know what our ruling is on this matter. In other words, you were on your way here, and we sent people behind you to tell them how they're going to actually act. And just so you know, we're going to compromise on circumcision for adults because we realize that that could be a hindrance to church growth. You can't tell a 28-year-old man that he's got to get circumcised. Amen, right? But they will abstain from sexual immorality, and they will abstain from meat offered to idols, and they will do these things. This is our ruling, right? And so... So James tells Paul, essentially, you've crossed over the line, bro, and I am sorting this out. So Paul says, what would you like me to do? James says, this is what you must do. You must be temple cleansed, which goes against everything Paul ever said. But, but, but he, he says to him, if you don't get temple cleansed, the Jews here are really upset. But if you get temple cleansed, they'll probably think that the rumors aren't true, Right? Now watch what happens. I just need a place to set this. Hang on. So watch, watch what happens here. Um, verse 27. When the days were completed for Paul's temple cleansing, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and and once again the gates of the temple were shut. So this mob grabs Paul, takes him outside to beat him, and who's standing there? James. And James does what? Shuts the door. (laughs) He's like, oh, okay. Right? He just shuts the door. 
This mob is beating Paul, maybe to death. And James is like, well, that'll solve the problem. Shuts the door. Now, watch what happens. Watch what happens. Um, verse, 30, uh, verse 32. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran to them. And when they saw the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So this Roman centurion and his platoon shows up, and they're beating Paul. And when they see the soldiers, they all back off. We don't know. We don't know what happened here, right? He's, just, he's unconscious. We don't know how this happened, right? This is what happens, right? If you keep reading, the centurion tries to figure out why this is an uproar. And, and it says because one was saying one thing and another was saying another, he couldn't get anybody to tell the straight story. So he ordered Paul to be, to be bound with two chains and march back to the army barracks, right? So they're marching Paul back to the army barracks, and watch what happens. Watch what happens. Some in the crowd, it was verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and as he could not learn about the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back to the army barracks. And when, he, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because the violence of the crowd was too severe. In other words, Paul was beaten so bad he could not walk. The soldiers are having to carry him into the army barracks. Now watch, what, this is where it gets crazy. Watch what, this, watch what happens. For the mob of the people followed crying away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? Do you know Greek? Now watch, watch what the centurion says to Paul in verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led, led 4,000 secret assassins into the wilderness? Paul, are you not the Egyptian? I, I thought you were the Egyptian that stirred up 4,000 secret assassins and led them into the wilderness to start a revolt against the Roman Empire. Are, are you not the Egyptian? And if you keep reading, Paul goes, uh, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't just say these things. I need a trial. This is not true. So what happened in this story? James calls Paul back to Jerusalem to give account for his preaching. He sends a delegation behind Paul to give them his answer on the matter. And then what he does is to get Paul out of his hair, he tips off the Romans that Paul's the Egyptian. Hey, you know that Egyptian you're looking for? I think he's coming into town. The Romans take Paul, and they're like, you're not the Egyptian. If you, keep, if you read the rest of Acts with that as the historical background, it all starts to make sense. Paul ends up in front of a guy named Felix. Felix says, are you the Egyptian? And Paul's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm from Tarsus, for goodness sakes, right? And it says that Felix, I'm quoting here, Felix saw no evidence to convict him but as a favor to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, who is that? James. As a favor to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he kept Paul in jail for two years. So Paul was in jail for two years for something he didn't do, for being falsely accused. After two years, Felix is replaced by a guy named Festus. And Festus is going, who's this guy in our prison? Bring him out here. And so Festus says, did you do what they accused you of? Paul's like, no, I am... I'm a Roman citizen. Check me out. I need a trial. As a matter of fact, I'm sick of this. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, I was fixing to find you innocent, but since you've appealed to Caesar, you got to go see him now. They walk him all the way to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, all for something he did not do. Four or five years, which should give you an incredible amount of respect for Paul. 
When you go back and read his prison epistles, he's in prison for something he did not do. And he's writing things like, live at peace, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all um, people. Don't speak ill of your enemies. Bless them with the love of the Lord. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon um, their head. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. And in the book of Galatians, he, he talks about the Judaizers in Jerusalem, and he says, I wish they would all just castrate themselves. They want to circumcise? Just go ahead and knock the whole thing off. That's what he, that is literally what he says. He has this real weak moment in Galatians chapter 5. But, so for those of you who take every word in the Bible literally that you should do it, I'm wondering, have you obeyed that one? Um, <laughs> so, but Paul is this loving guy, and I have a lot of respect for James. James in history was known as the most righteous man who ever lived. James refused to take a bath because that water could have been given to the poor for them to drink. James was martyred in 62 AD by a corrupt high priest named Ananus because James pointed out that he was stealing the tithe for himself. Um, James was a righteous man who simply didn't believe Paul's story. And quite frankly, would you? a guy that came against you, Jesus' entire ministry, and after Jesus' entire ministry was known for his attempts to kill people in your movement, suddenly has a vision that no one else was around to see, and then now he's spreading the words that Jesus is for everybody, but you don't have to keep any Jewish custom at all. You, you, gotta, you gotta have respect for James in this as well. You gotta see both sides of the story. So by the time, by the, time the council of Nicaea come around, that's who put the Bible together, by the way, um, Paul gets how many books? 14. James gets how many? One. Why? Because the Council of Nicaea was looking at all the writings, and, and there's this one letter called the Advent of James. Paul is an apostate heretic who claims to say our Lord never did. You got, well, we cannot put that in there, <laughs> right? Why? Because Paul, James was insisting that temple ritual needed to be a part of our life. Um, his radical movement, and he thought Jesus was for this, was Jesus was not there to wipe out the temple, but he was there to make it free. That's what James was against, was the charging for the services. Um, but by, the, by 70 AD, James died in 62. The temple was destroyed in 70. So by, three, by 350, when the Council of Nicaea started getting this stuff a halt, um, there's no need for temple ritual because there was, no, there was no temple. But Paul's message of faith in Christ alone, that was critical to the church growing to where it is now. So Paul gets 14 books, James gets one, but there's no, definitely no doubt as to why they disagreed. <laughs> they, they disagreed from the beginning, and that's okay. Jesus used them both, both fully devoted followers of Jesus. Is it okay for two fully devoted followers of Jesus to disagree? <laughs> yes, unless you're in seventh grade. <laughs> Does that answer the question? That's a decent answer. Yeah, yeah, that's clear. Yep, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay. Just, just to add a question there, why would Paul turn from something that was so, so adamantly ingrained in his life, the law and the Pharisee spirit he had, you know? What, you know? I think that's a great point. I think, I think one of the things that validates Paul's experience more than anything is that if, if you want to read a great history book on this, um, uh, Reza Aslan has written what the Harvard Literary Review has called the most historically exhaustive biography of Jesus of Nazareth ever. Now, uh, it's called Zealot. Um, let, me, let me explain. Um, if you, do not read that book for theology. 
Um, he actually says that in chapter one. He says, if you're going to read this book for theology, you're going to get mad at me. I'm not a theologian. I'm a historian. Um, he said, I'm not trying to write a book about Jesus the Christ. There's been plenty of books written about that. I'm simply writing a book as the foremost expert on Jesus in the world. I'm wanting to write a biography of the guy that was born in Nazareth and tell you about his life. And, but he talks about, he talks about um, uh, first century economics and how the Roman Empire could not control Jerusalem without the temple. So they had to have the religious leaders support because the temple was the bank. So they couldn't take, they couldn't take things from people unless they had the support of the central bank. And so if you were in that upper echelon of religious uh, elitism that Paul would have been in, then you were, given, you were given all kinds of passes by the Roman Empire, and you were actually living high on the hog. You were living in affluence. You were living in excessive wealth. Remember Paul says, he says, I know in my life, I know what it is to abound and I know what it is to have lack. He definitely knew what it was to abound. His experience with Jesus was so profound that he was willing to walk away from all of that and live in prison for most of the rest of his life. He ends up being martyred in 67 AD. Um, I, think, I think it was Nero. He ends up being martyred in 67 AD where all he had to do was be a company man and he would have had a great life for the rest of his life. A great life as it goes in those days. Um, he would have had a great life for the rest of his life. It was a profound move because it wasn't just a change in doctrine. It was a change in position. It was a change in elite status. He went from the elite of the elite of the elite to a guy that was beaten five times with rods, cats and nine tails. He was beaten 39 lashes twice. He was stoned, what do you say, uh, stoned twice, um, shipwrecked once. He lived in all kinds of prison. Five years in prison for something he didn't do, namely being the Egyptian. <laughs> and that was at the accusation of presumably James. This was the life he chose, and he stuck with it till the day he died. That is compelling. Because at any point he could have said, uh, just kidding, I'm going back to... I'm going back to this. This was much easier. The fact that he stuck with it. Oh, man. Oh, man. Some of that stuff he wrote in Philippians, the, the underhanded assault of the Roman Empire, man, he was, he was so slamming them. One of, the, one of the lines in Philippians, essentially he's saying, you've got to understand the history underneath it. He's essentially asking, he's, he's, he's essentially asking the, the people of Philippi who walked 100 miles to bring him food in prison. Right? It's hard to, you, you got to see that. The people in Philippi walked 100 miles to take care of him in prison. And, and he essentially asked the Roman Empire, if Caesar wasn't paying you, would anybody do that for you? You, you? you think you have power, but you have nothing. We've got power because we have people who do things for free out of love. If Christianity runs out of money, which it, it had no money that day, if Christianity runs out of money, we're still good because our engine is running on love, not on currency. Your engine needs currency. So when you do run out of currency, your loyalty goes with it. It's brilliant, sort of eloquent um, writing about the Roman Empire's oppression. Yes, ma'am. Either say it really loud so everybody can hear. Yes. Mm. Yeah. What a great question. 
I'm so glad I know the answer to this because I was panicking for a second. <laughs> I mean, actually, I wasn't panicking. I would have just said, I'm sorry, I don't know. But um, so, so her question essentially is, um, at the end of the book of Ruth, uh, um, uh, there's this statement in there that says, may this house be like, uh, be like the house of Perez, um, um, who was born of, who was born of Judah, um, and it goes on and on and on. Essentially, her question is, is what is the implication of be like the house of Perez? Huh. Now, to understand this, we have to understand that firstborns get justice and secondborns get mercy. In Jesus's genealogy, there are only four women mentioned, and the reason is, is because they weren't allowed to win, win, they weren't allowed to mention women, and the reason why is because in that day women didn't matter. Okay, and and that's just a fact. It's not anything against women. My mom is a Fortune 500 company executive VP. I am all for women's rights. I'm quite certain we're going to have a women president of the United States. It's it's you know I, I'm all for women's rights. I'm just simply saying back then women didn't matter, and so they weren't allowed to mention women in genealogies. And so when the writers of Jesus's genealogy, when they mentioned four women, that is like red flag waving. Look here, look here, check this out. And so there are four women mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. You have Rahab, the harlot, right, the prostitute. You, you, have, um, you have Bathsheba. There's a woman of virtue. You have Rahab. There's a woman of virtue. You have Ruth. Actually, if you read the story, one of the ways that she got Boaz's attention was to lay naked at his feet. Now, that's pretty clever, right? right? I mean, hardly virtuous, but yet effective, right? Because... You know, hey, Boaz, hey, like, you know, come on, you know, you got to give her a due. The scripture said to hate her. She's like, I got to make my first place strong, right? I'm getting naked. So no, no worries, right? So you got, you got Rahab, the harlot. You've got, you got Bathsheba, a woman of virtue. You have Ruth. And then it says, it says, and Judah begat Perez through Tamar. So it mentions Tamar. And so uh, the, the story of Tamar is quite uh, Jerry Springer. Um, it's. It's so weird. Um, Tamar is actually uh, Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. So yeah, so it was his son's. It was his son's wife, and then if I remember the story, I'm doing this off the top of my head. So if I get some of this wrong, please don't write me off. I'm if I'm wrong, I'm honestly wrong. It was something like this. Um, Judah uh, gets him gets her for his first uh, son. The son dies. Then by law, she has to go to the Next son, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, he dies. And then so he's only got one son left. Judah understandably says, woman, what's the matter with you? Every son I give you dies. Um, you're like a black widow. Uh, I- I'm not giving you my last son. This is not happening. And so, um, and so Tamar gets depressed about this because, once again, in those days, a woman without a man was liminal. They, they didn't have any rights. So Tamar chooses to trick the youngest son, um, and Judah begat Perez through Tamar. So it was uh, Jacob's son, Judah. Anyway, so Judah, uh, sorry, J- Judah ends up, um, uh, it says that Judah was walking up the road to shear sheep. <laughs> and it says that Tamar sat on the side of the road dressed like a prostitute, even though she's not. And so what that meant is that she covered her face, covered her head, uh, only the eyes were showing, and um, essentially saying, I'm available. And so, um, uh, and, and be, she'd have been unrecognizable. And it says, this is crazy. This is how raw the Bible can be at times. It says, Judah did not know it was Tamar. He simply thought she was a prostitute, <laughs> which tells you this is not Judah's first go at prostitution, right? So he walks over to Tamar and he says, uh, hey, uh, uh, can we do this thing, right? And she says, of course, I'm a prostitute. Of course, that's what we do, yeah. Um, uh, what are you going to pay me? And he says, uh, he says well, uh, 
I'll give you a goat. <laughs> and she says, I'll take a goat. Fair enough, right? Women's standards have changed, haven't they? I mean, like, like now they want things like diamonds and commitment, and they want you to have a job. Back then, it's a goat, right? So he says, he says here's the thing. I don't really have a goat with me. Um, so I tell you what let's do. Let's do what we're going to do, and then I'll go get a goat and bring it back, I promise. <laughs> and, and she says, do I look like an idiot to you? We're not doing that. She says, give me your ring, your staff, your cord, and, uh, and then I'll keep it as collateral. You bring a goat back to me. Now, a ring in that culture was power of attorney. It was a big deal, right? So, so, he, so he does. He, he gives her his ring for, for, he gives her power of attorney for one go which leads to all kinds of observations about rational ability during sexual arousal. It's just not there. All the blood's not there. Anyway, it's not good. So, yeah, you just, you don't, you can't make wise decisions in that state. So anyway, so, so he, he, he gives her his ring, and then they do what they're going to do, which we don't need to explain. We all understand this. And so then he goes, he goes to get the goat, right? And, uh, and he brings the goat back, and she's not there. Now, now you got a real problem. you got a prostitute running around with his power of attorney. Now, she gets, pregnant from this, uh, she gets pregnant from this situation, and it gets worse. She actually gets pregnant with twins, right? So this is a bad situation. So four months into this, she can't hide it anymore. And so they bring her to Judah, the guy that slept with her. They bring her to Judah, and they say, uh, Judah, your daughter is pregnant by prostitution. What do you say we do with her? Now, Judah, at the height of hypocrisy says, well, the scriptures strictly forbid prostitution, therefore, let's burn her, right? And, and, and Tamar is so, so good, because in Jewish law, um, if you're the judge, you have to be willing to be judged by the same standard with which you judge. That's the only way to keep things fair. So, so Tamar says, oh, good, thanks for pronouncing that judgment there, bro. Hey, uh, uh, if you guys are wondering who the dad is, he should be burned too, and the dad is whoever owns this ring. And, of course, the ring is like clear Judah, right? It's like having a, it's like having a photo of the thing, right? And, so, and it says, so, so for Judah to burn her, he would have to be willing to burn himself, and he's like, nah, let's just let her go, which, fair enough. And so, so nine months into this, nine months into this, um, it says that she is going to give birth to twins. And the weirdest, it's the weirdest birth ever. It says that the firstborn's um, name was Zara. I can't believe I remember this. I'm such a nerd. This is so ridiculous. The firstborn's name was Zara, and he was born with his arm first. Which, I, look, I've never given birth, nor have I ever seen it, nor do I think I've missed anything. But if, if I'm giving birth and an arm shoots out, that is frankly weird, isn't it? Like, can you imagine that? Right? Oh, yeah. oh man. Wow. Zara's arms comes out, right? And, um, and it says that the midwife marked his arm as the firstborn. Why? Because you got to know who gets the justice and who gets the... Right, of course. So, so Zara's arm... And it says, after he was marked as the firstborn, the secondborn's name was Perez, and his arm came out too, which is... You know? And then it says, and they wrestled. <laughs> it's the weirdest birth ever. You'd, you'd have to be thinking someone's going to die here, right? And it says that the secondborn, Perez, won the wrestling match and pulled the arm back in the womb. So weird, isn't it? Like, <laughs> right? And it says after he pulled the arm back in the womb, he birthed himself. Um, so what happened in that story? So why did they include that Jerry Springer story in Jesus' genealogy? Because in that story, the one who had the legal right to mercy, Perez, took on the form of justice, which is exactly how the New Testament frames Jesus, that he counted himself of no reputation and did not consider equality of God something to be seized, but took on the form of 
Adam. Uh, later, it calls him the second Adam. So in the first Adam, you get justice, but in the second Adam, you get mercy, right? And so the idea is, is, that, is that Jesus had every right to mercy, but decided in humility to take on justice for people, right? So in Ruth, when it says, may your house be like that of Perez, essentially, may your house be the people who don't demand their rights for justice, but may you outlive mercy for the rest of your days. That. And that's exactly what happened and that's exactly what happened in Ruth's story is Ruth ends up um, marrying, um, uh, what's his name, Boaz. And, and, and Boaz, and then they have um, o, Obed or Oded or one of those, yeah. And then, and then Obed is the father of da- Jesse, and then Jesse's the father of David, and, and, then, and then ends up bringing around the entire line of mercy, 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 mercy. So that prophecy was actually uh, a, a foretelling of what Ruth would bring from her obedience to trust the spirit of Christ instead of the letter of the law. Okay. I want to be done by 8.30 to honor you. Um, those were three incredibly good questions. Um, I hope you learned a lot about the Bible. Um, I hope uh, you fall in love with Scripture again. Um, Anytime I preach, I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. May you each and every one of you have the courage to take the next step to Jerusalem, um, to Bethlehem, excuse me. Uh, If you could do me a favor, uh, if you could participate at the table tonight, that'd be awesome. Um, I got kids to feed. (laughs) Not my own kids. I don't have any kids. I've got mentally handicapped children to feed. And so, but if you, if you don't want anything, I bless you. There's no worries. But if you do want something, um, if you could buy first and chat later, because I've got to pack this up. I've got to do it because I've got to set, I've got to leave it here for fast way to come get it. And it's just, you know, if you could, I'm all for you taking as long as you need, but don't stand around for 30 minutes. And then if you could do us a favor and in shifts, come do that for us. Um, I love your city. I love your pastors. Um, for, the, for the four pastors that are here participating, I honor you. I'm always happy to come back to Gladstone. We've got it booked in for next time. Um, bring a friend next time. And uh, although I am, this is really good turnout for Tuesday night, man. This is like really good. And I hope you were, um, hope you're really blessed. I hope you found that um, a great use of your time. Um, I love you. I honor you. May each and every one of you say yes to the infinite possibilities God has for you. And may you take your next one step to Bethlehem. Um, Until I see you next time, grace and peace. God bless.